Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Peter Leem is here today in the studio. Peter is the author of a fantastic book that's about to arrive in bookstores this fall about the subject of sherry, and he's also the author of copious information about the Champagne region and its producers at champagneguide.net. One of the most fascinating intellects in wine, I think, someone who really uh, spends a lot of time doing the kind of thinking that's all too rare in a business, and somebody who has, in many ways, pioneered regions before they uh, became more popular uh, through his interest in Riesling and at one time Burgundy. Um, Peter, thanks for jo- joining us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lenny. Uh, I know we could jump right in on the wine side, but I thought it might be kind of interesting to talk a little bit about tea and, uh, and your appreciation of that subject. Um, how did you first sort of start searching out more information about tea and where did it lead you? <laughs> um, I think that you know, I think I've been, been drinking tea longer than I've been drinking wine. Um, and even in, in terms of fine tea, I, I think, um, you know, my, uh, my experience with that has, has been longer than, than, than my experience of fine wine. The, there are many parallels that you can draw be- between the two. Um, certainly ideas about terroir, ideas about artisanality, um, ideas about, about specificity of, of, place and style and, and producer and things like this. One of the big differences is that that specificity in the tea world is not nearly as sophisticated as it is in, in the wine world. And so it makes it difficult. I thought you were going to say that you usually get a lot more wasted when you drink tea. <laughs> Sometimes. That's Sometimes. my big problem. Yeah. I get hammered on the <laughs> Tea. Well, yes, there is that pe- peculiar form of tea drunkenness, <laughs> yeah, right. where, where you've, you've had so much and you couldn't possibly take a drop more. <laughs> But uh, but fortunately, you recover much more easily from that than you do from the. Uh, from it's just uh, an early morning, not <laughs> not a late morning. Yeah. So did you at one point go uh, to China to study tea? Was it <laughs> ostensibly? In fact, uh, when when I was um, let's see, when I was twenty one, I I received a grant, in fact, to go to China uh, for an indefinite period of time wow. to to study tea. And so they, they handed me this, this huge chunk of money. It wasn't specifically, well, I mean, it, it was a, a grant by foundation that, that was, um, 
that was interested in in bringing people to China to to explore the culture. So so you could explore any sort of topic that you wanted. I I chose tea because that was what I was interested in. And um one problem was that I I arrived in China after spending about 6 months on the Indian subcontinent. And so I had been traveling for a long time and and I um I was very interested in Tibetan culture and and I had uh, um you know, I, I had been traveling around in, in in Tibetan communities in exile, and and I really wanted to go to Tibet. And so when I arrived in China, I ended up taking this massive odyssey across the Tibetan plateau instead wow. of doing what I was supposed to be doing there, oh, okay. was studying tea. And, um, and it was this dramatic sort of like life-changing event that you know i actually literally almost died um but uh you know i I came cool thing about dying in tibet reincarnation that's (laughs) there you go that's the best part about it yeah but you have to wait seven years (laughs) (laughs) i I didn't have the time (laughs) (laughs) i gotta fill out this fellowship paper (laughs) i got deadlines (laughs) what if i don't have arms when i come back what if i'm a tree exactly exactly but so, um, but you know, I, I came back. You know, eventually I came back to the states. I was very apologetic you know, because I was saying like, hey, you know, I didn't do what I said I would do. Right. They turned out to be totally cool about it, and they said, well, you know, sounds like what you did, uh, you know, fits fits the the spirit and the theme of the program. So uh, so it all worked out. But um, yeah, sometimes you know, I I I wish that I could go back and and um, you know really explore tea culture in depth you know again i mean i i've been to you know to tea regions in china but but nothing like you know what i've done in the wine world i remember at one point you wrote a really interesting uh piece about the terroir of the teapot uh, mm-hmm. it was something mm-hmm. that you had written on your old blog uh which was a wonderful mm-hmm. blog a personal blog that you had kept for a while um and it was about um the relationship of a particular tea to a particular kind of clay in a certain style of teapot mm-hmm. and how that could change. Um, do you have any reminiscences of that story or any stories you want to tell us about how maybe that, that piece came about? Well, I think, uh, um, yeah, I think that piece was, was written when I first bought, I, I bought my first, uh, Chaozhou teapot, which is from, uh, from Guangdong, uh, in, in the South of China. And this, um, well, I guess I'm fascinated with with the idea of of the Chinese teapot in general. It's you can really draw an analogy between between fine wine glasses, you know, and the, the appreciation of wine in in fine stemware, you know, to to the appreciation of tea in in uh, a proper teapot, um, particularly with clay. Um, you know, just as as with the wine, where where you can pour the same wine in ten different glasses and you'll get ten different experiences. Uh, you know, with tea. Uh, um, you know, using using different uh, using different vessels, using different shapes, using different materials, all contributes to to the character of the tea as well. And there's an additional variable with tea that you don't get with wine, which is that it requires some skill to prepare, and so so it, it puts puts much more um, on you as on the, the end user. user. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, the most famous Chinese teapots are those from Yixing, mm-hmm. which is uh, um, an area near Shanghai. Okay, and I mean this. This has been you know for thousands of years. This this place has been famous for its clay. 
And there's a very particular type of clay there that, that just has an affinity for tea. I and, see. And, um, like when I see Ming dynasty vases, is that a similar kind of thing? Uh, the sort of vases that draw a lot of attention or is that not necessarily, not no, necessarily, no, because uh, most, most of what you see like that is porcelain. Oh, okay. And, right. uh, and for tea, um, you know, historically people have made, um, um, fired but unglazed teapots. Got it. Because the idea is that the clay contributes something to the tea. It's it's very much like like an oak barrel, honestly, mm -hmm. with water. Or amphora. Yeah, or amphora. or amphora. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so, you know, the idea, I mean, you can get incredibly geeky about this and, and um, you know, with, with like tea masters, you know, to, to, to listen to these people, you know, talk about teapots and to see them use different teapots with different teas is, is a really exciting thing. Um, um, you know, you, you can you can sort of shape the tea in what direction you want it to go. I imagine, um, you know, very much like a winemaker, you know, if, if maybe they wanted a little more reductive style, they might put it in tank. If they wanted, you know, a little bit more, you know, oxygenation, they might put it in barrel or mm -hmm. if they, they wanted, you know, they might use amphora if they didn't want, uh, you know, like, like any oak flavors. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's, it's pretty similar, you know, with, with a teapot, it's, um, you you know a thicker or a thinner teapot is going to is going to make a difference as to how the the tea behaves. There are different types of clay, even within Yixing itself. There are, there are different types of clay, um, you know, and 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 some are better for different teas, or, or some you know have they, they they produce different effects. Was there a particular kind of tea or clay that was running out at one time, or that was no longer available? Yes, in fact, um, I think that I wrote about this too on on my blog. Um, I I um, I had spent a long time looking for someone to make a pot for me. I see. Um, you know, I had, I had, uh, you know, I have a, a, a modest collection of, of, you know, various authentic uh, Yixing and, and other clay, clay pots. Um, but, but I was very interested in, 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 you know, meeting a potter and, and, and having them you know, make something specifically for me. And I ended up uh, finding this person. I mean, it, in China, you, you, you always have to, you know, it's, in China, you always have, have a certain degree of skepticism because, okay. because, uh, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of fakes and mm -hmm. people will say anything to get your money. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, my, my pot may be, you know, maybe authentic, may, it may not be, I don't know, but, uh, but I had a great experience, uh, you know, making this or having this pot made for me. Um, and and I, I learned a lot. Um, I was speaking, you know, with this potter about uh, about a particular type of clay called Di Chaoqing, which um, was was very famous in the past. But supposedly the supplies ran out. I it, see. Uh, or sometime around the seventies, maybe eighties. Um, uh, um, yeah, it was just completely you know mined out. So. So there are still people who have small quantities of it that uh, that that you know they've they've preserved in blocks. Oh, okay. And so this guy says, you know, well, you know, he he does have some. Um, it's expensive, um, but if I really want it, you know, he he's, he's willing to to make me a pot from it. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this to me this is thrilling because you know for me to get an authentic pot, like you know, for, to to me to buy a, a pot, you know, made in the seventies from Di Shaoxing, like this is prohibitively expensive. Right. 
So, um, because to me, this sounds really cool and sort of like that story in Kill Bill where she goes and gets the sword maker to make her one of the swords when he's actually retired. Because it's, exactly. you know, you basically, is it true that you got the pot like he made for you the pot? Well, yeah. So, so yeah, I specified, uh, you know, the, the shape of the pot that I wanted, you know, the style. Uh, um, so, it really is kind of like custom tailoring. Yeah. Yeah. It was a completely bespoke pot. And um, you know, and made from from this particular type of clay uh, that that has a very distinctive, not really color. I mean, there are other clays that are this color, but it's um, um, it has a particular sheen, and and it's it's flecked with with uh, you know these these very particular sort of like you know little little specks, um, um, and it turned out really well. It, it, it's quite beautiful, and. Um, well, so there's there's also this idea in in the world of of Chinese teapots that you dedicate each pot to a specific type of tea. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of myth about this. Um, people say that that it's because because the tea is absorbed into the walls of the clay, mm-hmm. and so so there are these legends about how you know like. People have these two hundred year old pots, and you don't even have to put tea in it anymore because <laughs> you can just put water in it. And, and see, progressively they get cheaper to make that morning <laughs> cup of tea. Maybe, maybe. Personally, I, I I don't I don't believe this all so much. Um, I mean, I I do think that it's important to dedicate uh, you know, to dedicate a pot to a specific type of tea. So I can already say that I've screwed that up in my my homebrew. <laughs> the <laughs> well, you the know, English it's... breakfast Darjeeling, uh, you know, Genmai Cha. The, uh, well, tea it, 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 it really depends. I mean, it, this is really true only for clay pots. You know, porcelain in a neutral vessel, it doesn't doesn't really matter. Um, you know, porcelain or glass or other other uh, you know, kind of inert materials. With clay, because there is this sort of absorption, you know, it um, um, you know again like a barrel, right? Not that you necessarily need to use the same the same you know barrel or, or the same type of you know put the same type of wine into into a barrel, but but you know there are like. Like sherry barrels are prized for a sure. reason, you know. Burgundy barrels are prized, you know, for for a reason. Um, yeah, I mean, like Clos Rougeur gets their barrels yeah. from Chateau Latour every year. Yeah, there you go. You know, probably for some reason. Yeah. Um. What's What's funny is that there's there was this uh, there, there was this tea master in Singapore who's passed away now, but um, he had some bizarre ideas that really influenced me in in my youth, and he said things that that. I've never heard anybody else say. And you know, speaking about the subject of of uh, of teapots and and you know their sort of affinities to to tea, um, he well, so conventional wisdom says that that basically you can take any pot and and pair it with any tea. Uh, um, the the important thing is that you need to cure the pot and you, you have to prepare it, you know, and, and, uh, use this specific type of tea. Um, and then once it's cured, then you keep using that same type of tea in it. And over the process of many years, then the, the pot develops, you know, this, this sort of affinity with, with, a, a specific tea and, and everything's great. So this guy, um, this guy just said bullshit. Uh-huh. Like this is, this is not true. Um, he said, "A a teapot will have will already have a an affinity for a specific type of tea, and it's your job to find that find the tea that it belongs to." Oh wow! He said, "If it's the wrong tea, 
you, no matter what you do, you can, you can pour tea into it for a hundred years and, and it will never, you know, properly harmonize. Mm -hmm. But if you find the right tea, then from the very first pot, it will, you know, it will be like, um, it, it will, it will enhance both, both the pot and the tea. And are there some indicators in terms of shape or size that gave you a, a hint? No, in fact. And oh, wow. he, he had a collection of, I don't know, hundreds of teapots. And, and he, he made very meticulous records of, of his experiments and, and you know, which teas paired with, with each pot. Because I can imagine myself being that guy that would go <laughs> to see him and have him be like, you have chosen poorly. <laughs> As like my hand melts. <laughs> you know what Face I mean? Melts off, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I can yeah. see that being a little terrifying, <laughs> you know? I know, it's so true. But, um, but he, he described, um, you know, in, in his book, he, he tried to describe um, you know, what happens when, when you find that the proper match. Okay. Cause that would be uh, yeah. really interesting actually. Yeah. Yeah. He says that, that, uh, you know, a, the, the pot takes on a certain sheen. And, really? And, and, it changes color. Yeah. The actual physical appearance of the pot changes. The color changes the, the sort of, um, the, the patina, you know, on, mm -hmm. on the, on the surface of the clay. I mean, it, it, it becomes visibly, more vibrant and brighter and, and it, it can even change in color. You know, it's, and, you know, of course I'm reading this and I'm thinking there's no way that right. this is true. I yeah. mean, this is, I this saw is, Aladdin already. Is, <laughs> yeah. This is completely. Uh, how come it's not like George Riedel and you can't just put the type of tea it is on the box and tell me so exactly. I can buy it at Home Depot. Exactly. And so, um, so I, of course I decided to experiment. And, and, and that's the difference between you and 99% of the other people <laughs> in the world right there. You're like, Perhaps. I thought that was bullshit. So then <laughs> yeah, I decided to check it out. Exactly. So I, I, I purchased a, a new Yixing teapot yeah. because I want to start from scratch. And, um, you know, and I had, I had a whole collection of, of teas. I mean, I probably had you know, at least 50 different teas you know, at my house. So I started at number one and started making tea and pot after pot after pot. And, and really trying, trying to do it, um, you know, trying to do it in, in relatively controlled conditions. Sure. You know, so everything else is light the same. And yeah. Yeah. Using the same water, using, you know, measuring my steam. Yeah, it would really suck so. if you turned on the black light and <laughs> change exactly. up the whole color thing. <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I must have gone through 20 teas like this and, and I mean, the pot never looked different to me. Really? And, and yeah, I thought, so I thought, you know, no way. Yeah. I just thought there's, there, there, there's no way this is true. I mean, this guy, you know, this guy is making all of this up. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, then I, I, I distinctly remember the, the incident that changed my mind. Um, I was, uh, I was in an apartment in the East village at, at the time and, and I was sitting there in the afternoon, you know, making pot after pot of tea. And so I, I took a particular tea that, that uh, particular type of tea, uh, you know, that, uh, that I hadn't used before, uh, with, with this pot. And, and so I decided, uh, you know, what the hell I'll, I'll try it. Um, and it was a, uh, it was a type of dansong, which is, uh, you know, which is a, a very peculiar tea. It, it's, it's. I think it's the most difficult type of tea to brew. Okay. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's really a, a specialist, you know, tea for, for, for that reason. Um, but, 
So I brewed it up, put in this pot, put water in it. As soon as I put the water in, the pot completely changed color. It became visibly shiny. Really? You know, where it, it was, it, you know, the, the color was, was matte. So like, you know, I mean, it, it's unglazed clay. So, you know, it, it was, it was right. matte and almost dull sure. uh, before. As soon as I put the water in with the tea, the whole appearance of the pot changed. Wow. I, I don't think I've ever encountered anything quite it, like that. Yeah, it, it was stunning. And, and I, I was shocked. Yeah. Right? And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I drank this pot and, and then, you know, I, I did it again, poured it in for a second steeping. And, and again, like, you know, I put the water in and you could see like the pot, I mean, almost glowing. And at this point, you know, my girlfriend at the time, she, she walks in the door, Yeah, and she comes home and, and I mean, you know, she didn't really know anything about right. tea or teapot. She thought I was a little bit crazy. <laughs> and, yeah. But as soon as she walks in, she looks at the pot and she says, what did you do to that? You right. Know, even she saw, saw the, the difference in, in, in the spot. That's a good control subject right there. Because otherwise, you know, it could have been like, <laughs> wow, I was a little tired. And... Exactly. But so, um, yeah. And so, so this, this experience really changed the way that, that I thought about teapots. And I can honestly say I've never heard anything like that before. I yeah. mean, really any subject about beverages. Mm. So, okay. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things about that is it shows how dedicated you are to learning more about subjects that, it's just not an everyday knowledge kind of mm. thing. I mean, you really have the dedication and also the intellect to really follow through on an idea. Um, and I think a good example of that is when you took an interest in champagne and then you move there uh, <laughs> to learn about it, which is something that not a lot of critics do. I mean, it's it's one thing to open a lot of champagne in New York. It's another to move to the region and live there for a few years. How did that come about? Well, I had wanted to live in France for a long time. Um and really just because of professional reasons or you know, various other reasons that I, I, I never had. Um, although I was going to France a lot. I mean, I, I, I had been traveling in France since I was 15 and, and really going almost every year, uh, um, you know, since then. Um, I was here in New York and, uh, you know, I was working for Wine and Spirits magazine. Um, and I guess... The timing all really fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it in 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 all sectors of my life, it, it uh, I I enjoyed being in New York, but I wasn't really tied down to it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was getting a little bit older. It was, I mean, this was, uh, you know, this was in two thousand six, and you know, so so I'm thirty three years old, and I'm I'm realizing, well, you know, if I don't do it now, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen, right? Um, I had, you know, I had already been a champagne specialist, you know, for, for some time. Um, and so, so there was no question that, you know, champagne was the place I was going to move. I mean, it wasn't just moving to France. It was specifically moving to the champagne region. Um, I had, I had been going to champagne, you know, every year, uh, you know, often multiple times a year, um, um, for a long time, but, but I wanted something a little bit more intimate and a little bit more in depth. I think, you know, there's a lot of strain when you go, uh, you know, you go visit a region for two weeks and, and you're trying to cram as much as possible. Yeah. And, you know, you're doing four visits a day and, and. Right. You know, These are people who live there who have lives and it's tough <laughs> for them to convey the whole thing in three hours. It's true. It's true. And 
so, um, yeah, so I decided to pick up, uh, you know, at the end of 2006 and, and move to Champaign. And, and of course, you know, everybody on both sides of the Atlantic thought I was absolutely crazy. But, um, you know, it's been a very rewarding experience. Have there been any difficulties that you've encountered? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> one, uh, one, there, there's simply the, the difficulty of, of living in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that it's a very valuable experience. I think that's something that everybody should do. Um, but, um, you know, expatriates always say that, that moving out of your, out of the country that you were born in makes you, makes you appreciate your home country more. You know? Oh, and, really? And that's certainly true. Um, you know, there, I mean, there are, there are things that I do like about France, but, uh, but certainly living in France has, has made me miss a lot of things about the United States. And living in you know, living in, in, in a culture that's not your own, there, um, there are lots of rewards. It's, uh, um, I mean, it's, you know, in many ways a fantastic experience because, uh, um, you're learning new things, you're, you're, you know, you're brushing up on your language, you're, uh, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you're dealing with people in, in a different way than, than you, know, you, you do in, in your home country. But, there are there are really things that uh, that wear you down after a while, you know. And honestly, I think that the the problems about living not problems that's a bad word, uh, um, but you know the the challenges of, of living in in a foreign country are not the big things. You know, mm-hmm. people people think like, oh, you know, how am I going to get a job or mm-hmm. like how am I going to get a visa or you know I don't speak the language like what am I going to do? I mean, these kind of big overriding things they can all be dealt with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's the little things that really annoy you. It's, um, you know, like, I mean, the cable, you know, like the cable bill or mm-hmm. like, you know, getting a mobile phone or um, getting a driver's license, you know, and, and like, you know, all these little mundane things in life that you completely take for granted mm-hmm. here, um, they somehow become, become magnified when, when, you know, you're living somewhere else. And in general, did you find the people there very welcoming? Um, I, I do. It's funny because in France, uh, you know, even within France, uh, the Champenois are, are, um, regarded as, as a little bit standoffish and a oh, little is that bit true? closed. Yeah. And so when I meet people from, from other areas in France, you know, I tell them that I live in Champagne, um, you know, they're, they're always surprised because <laughs> they think, you know, they think, why would you move there? The people are awful. <laughs> and the people aren't awful. I, I've, I've had, uh, I've had very good experiences, you know, with, with people in Champagne. Um, but also, you know, I've been going to Champagne for a long time. Sure, so, you know people there. Yeah, yeah. I, I've and already I, built I've relationships. Witnessed, witnessed some really close relationships that you have with several mm-hmm. growers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, there are more people with whom I have a professional relationship, uh, you know, there than, than, you know, a real, like, uh, you know, a real friendly one. Uh, um, but, uh, but in, in general, well, you, know, you people, are there to work too. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and you know, but in, in, in general, um, I found the people to be, you know, to be very accommodating. They're, they're very excited that I'm there. Uh-huh. Um, cause I it mean, just can't be every day for them that they see someone like yourself. That's oh, absolutely. Here. Yeah. Um, um, you know, not only am I the only American wine writer to live in the Champagne region, I am the only wine writer period. I mean, wow. there, 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 there are no, you know, all, all the French wine critics, they all live in Paris. Right. You know, uh, Which, um, admittedly, isn't that far away. No, no. It's I only mean, you can be there in an hour and a half. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. 
but but at the same time it's very different living in paris mm -hmm. and you feel the weather in a way <laughs> you do you know you know what uh, the harvest is like because you're yeah. right there with it. yeah yeah you know i mean you know in my house uh, you know that i've lived in for the last six years so uh, um you know my bed is maybe 50 feet away from vines really and, yeah you know the, like the vineyards of dz are in my backyard <laughs> right you know, so so uh um yeah, it's it's um, you know it, it, it's a a relationship to a place and and you know a relationship to a wine growing region that uh, you know that that I've never had before and and that that it's tough to get the, the zoning permit in New York to have <laughs> vines right next to your bedroom. It's I've, true. I've found I've worked through the bureaucracy on that and it's just more pain than it's yeah, worth. And you know Upper East Side terroir. <laughs> it's its own thing. <laughs> hey, so. Um, what did you end up doing with what you learned in Champagne? Uh, where can people find out about some of that uh, knowledge that you've gleaned? Well, um, the primary thing that I do is is I write my website, which is called ChampagneGuide.net. Okay. It's a subscription site. It's $89 a year. Um, it, it, uh, I've start, I started this site uh, three years ago. And the bulk of the site is really about producers. Okay. Um, I, I don't like, I don't like writing tasting notes to be frank. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I don't think that that's, uh, I don't think that that is always very useful. And I also don't think that that's wine writing. Uh -huh. And it's got to be especially problematic with champagne with all the disgorgement dates it's true. to do tasting notes that are actually going to translate for yeah. people. It's true. Champagne is very complicated. In that you're regard. not really drinking the same wine a lot, even though it's the same vintage or non-vintage and same producer. It may not really mm -hmm. be the same thing at all. Mm -hmm. I've found. No, it's true. It's true. So you know, I mean, my site has has plenty of tasting notes on there, mm -hmm. um, um, but but that's not what the site is really about. Um, and I deliberately uh, arranged the site so that tasting notes are not the focus. Oh, okay. Um, it's arranged in. Uh, so, so the the main portion of the site is is um, is a section with with producer profiles, where I really talk about the producers. I talk about their philosophies, their methods, um, you know, and and I talk about uh, their kind of a general overview of their wines, and then connected to each one, you know, are, are you know, tasting notes for for various current releases, you know, of, of their wines. Um, but but really, my goal is is more to you know not really tell you what this particular wine tastes like, but to give you an idea of what this producer is all about, to mm -hmm. give, give you a background and a context for you to place the wine in. And there's some people that it seems like you've done that better than uh, any other source I can think of, like uh, Gautaro at Vouet mm -hmm. and Sorbet. I feel like you really told that story uh, oh, kind thanks. of before a lot of other people did. Are we seeing um, p specific people that are really kind of changing the conversation in Champagne uh, today that maybe someone listening to this broadcast might go out and, and seek further? Well, I think that Champagne is very exciting, uh, you know, in that regard. I, I think, um, you know, Champagne is a very old region um, and a very established one, but at the same time, sometimes, you know, you feel like it almost has the energy of an emerging wine region. Really? Um, you know, Champagne that must change is going on. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, within within the last two decades, uh, you know, I think the the whole um, um, the the Champagne scenario has has really, uh, or I guess I suppose the dialogue has changed in in Champagne, and and there have, there are people asking questions that they didn't before. There are people focusing on on things that you know that 
no one has before. So, um, so you know, if you think up until, you know, really up until let's say twenty years ago, um, champagne was was fairly fairly homogeneous. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can talk about okay, yes. Krug has a very different style from Tatanchet, mm-hmm. right? Bollinger has a very different style, you know, from Roderer. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, they're all working within the same paradigm, within mm-hmm. the same same kind of hegemony. And um, and then all of a sudden things change. You know, people want to talk about uh, you know growers versus houses, right? And, and, That's and, certainly and, very popular. Yeah, but, you know, people, people want to make this the the debate. And um, I mean, I think you know certainly. Champagne growers are more prominent now, or grower producers and you know, grower estates are, are are more more prominent now than than they were in the past. And and there are many many exciting producers, you know, amongst the champagne growers. But I think that that the the you know discussion of uh, or this this kind of um, you know this this battle between growers and, and negociants, I don't think that this is entirely accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are, there are growers who are incredibly progressive and, and, you know, have, have, um, amazing ideas and, and who are incredible, incredibly skilled vine growers and winemakers and are making some of the best wines of the region. There are other growers who are very complacent mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. who, you know, uh, um, you know, who, who aren't, uh, who are really doing, doing things exactly as the, you know, as the last generation did mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, and are not very exciting at all. You know, and by the same token, I mean there are houses. You know, people want to criticize houses because uh, because you know we have this idea today that 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 volume is bad, right? That the smaller you are, the better you are. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there are these houses that that are doing really incredible things. Um, and and yeah, okay, you know, there there are some houses that that you know could could improve their wines as well. So, you know, really, it's. It's not a question of saying growers are good, houses are bad, or, mm-hmm. or vice versa. You know, uh, um, I, I think it's it's really it really depends on the individual producer. And um, so you're sitting in front of a glass. What for you makes uh, champagne really good and really interesting, or sort of dull? I mean, I understand that there's a lot of different styles, but are there some hallmarks? that one might be looking for that kind of set the tone for, boy, this is exciting mm-hmm. or this is a little bit, mm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that makes champagne special is, um, is its finesse. Mm-hmm. When you compare it to other sparkling wines of the world, uh, of which there are many good ones, uh, you know, champagne is, um, I mean, there's a certain elegance and a certain finesse to champagne, partially because of the, the terroir, you know, the, the soil, the climate, um, um, partially because of winemaking, uh, you know, champagne tends to to be uh, to be aged much longer than, than other sparkling wines do. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, champagne, you know, champagne can be made of, of many different varieties, and, and of course, you know, a, a Chardonnay just as a as a variety has has more intrinsic finesse than Meunier does. But at the same time, you know, like like. Uh, you know, even if you're tasting like a Meunier-based champagne or a Pinot-based champagne, uh, um, you know, there, there's a certain refinement and a certain finesse that that uh, you know that that is the hallmark of, of the best ones. I mean, yeah, certainly there's some people working just with Meunier or doing sure. some cool stuff right now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, I mean, for me, I think harmony is very important. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Well, and yeah, I think you know. 
harmony or balance, you know, you know, these are, are words that are kind of thrown around a lot, uh, and, and they mean different things to different people. I think that, you know, in, in Champagne, you can look at, at the many different components of the wine, right? Champagne is certainly is high in acidity. Um, it's relatively low in alcohol, but still, alcohol is a component. Um, there is fruit or, you know, fruit flavor, which uh, historically has not been, been, um, emphasized in, in Champagne, but today, um, you know, due to both warmer weather and to differing philosophies, uh, you know, among producers, um, you know, fruit is, is more of a, a pronounced element. Um, and then of course, you know, with Champagne, you, you have dosage, uh, you know, which, um, um, you know, which is not about sugar, um, but it's the, but dosage is about bringing the rest of these elements together. Oh really? I think so. This is this is. Uh, I, I think that this is, this is one of the big mistakes that, that we make in discussions about mm-hmm. dosage is that we focus on sweetness. We say, "Oh, I like dry wine, so I want a non-dosé," or you know, "I don't like you know my wines to be too dry, so you know I, I take like you know a brut." And this is this is sort of missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, dosage is not there for purposes of sugar. Dosage is there for purposes of balance. Do you feel like your history in studying Riesling helped you understand some of that? Because I, I think of German Riesling as having that same sort of thing. Like It's true. Someone was making a point to me the other day where they said, like, look, sugar helps build the terroir into the wine. It's really true. Um, um, I, I think that that, that that definitely holds true in, uh, you know, in traditional German Riesling, where, where you, have, you have residual sugar, you have alcohol, acidity, and minerality, you know, almost. But I mean, that's that's a component that's not necessarily inseparable from from the other parts. But so so you know, you have like sugar and alcohol and acidity that, that all have to come into harmony, mm-hmm. and they all have balance to balance beam. Yeah, they 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 have to balance in a way, you know. And so then, you know, if you say, okay, well, what does this word balance mean? I think that that balance is is a state at at which which these components come together in such a way that the wine shows its maximum sense of complexity, of finesse, of Got length, it. of character, you know, of, of minerality, of, of all these, these things that we value in wine. Well, it's true. I mean, um, you know, there are many non-dosé champagnes that I like, but, uh, but I think there are many that are perhaps a little bit overly austere, mm-hmm. a little bit severe. Do you feel like people who are making good non-dosage champagne are starting with that idea? So maybe they pick a little later and get some more fruit Absolutely. going? Absolutely. I, I firmly believe you cannot, you cannot just, I mean, th- there are some instances where people make a non-dosé from their regular brute and, and it works out fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marino Ledru is a great example of that. Oh, okay. Or Philippinot. Uh, you know, is, is another one where uh, where where actually the brut and the non dose are the same wine, but dosed to different levels. But that's a pretty like. But when I think of Clos de Guas, I think of pretty ripe site. Well, and when yeah, I think of Ambonet, I think of fruit that gets a fair amount of. That's also true. Um, but I I think that you know uh, uh, like cases like that are extremely rare. I think the best non dose wines are are wines that are specifically grown or specifically blended. You know, to be non dose to get to from, that from point. the beginning. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and a lot of it, a lot of it happens in the vineyards, um, um, you know, riper fruit, you know, being a result of, of more conscientious viticulture, um, you know, being, you know, maybe, maybe a, a result of picking later, but even, you know, more often just a result of the changing climate in general. Um, you know, we're having, we're having warmer weather in Champagne where, uh, um, harvests are earlier, certainly. And, um, and so, so 
you know, all of that contributes to not only just the creation of non-dosage champagnes, but the but lowering of dosage in general. I think you know the balance point of of the modern wine is, is slightly different than than the balance point of a traditional wine sure. twenty years ago. And that's because vintages have gotten a little warmer. Yeah, partly, partially, partially. Um, so getting off champagne a little bit, uh, you know, you recently took a detour and you went and stayed in a sherry area of southern Spain, uh, Jerez area, uh, for a month and, and with several visits as well after that month. And uh, it's culminating in a book that you've recently submitted uh, for publication. And I just thought I'd ask you how that came about. I mean, I think a lot of people associate you with Riesling or associate you with Burgundy or associate you now, especially with Champagne, as kind of a go-to guy. And here you've taken sort of a a detour out Mm -hmm. into southern Spain. And I heard you say once that this was the book that you thought you really could write at this moment. And I wonder uh, what you meant by that at that time. Well, um, yeah, I suppose I'll confess that, uh, you know, aside from Champagne, my great love in the wine world has always been Sherry. Um, I've, um, you know, I've been a longtime fan of Sherry. I've been going to, to the Sherry region, um, since 1998. So, you know, uh, so, yeah, so it's been, it's been 14 years now. Um, and, um, you know, although, uh, you know, I've, I've assembled a, a massive library of, of, you know, books about Sherry from the past, there there hasn't been anything recently, you know, that that uh, that has really been been satisfactory as as a as a, a general overview of sherry. Yeah, when I look on my own bookshelf, I feel like I haven't gotten a new sherry book in fifteen years. It's true. It's true. I mean, um, you know, okay, there was uh, you know a Manzanilla book written last year, but it's you know that's very specific on Manzanilla. Um, you know, Julian Jeff's book, which is is one of the bibles of of the sherry world, um, it was. It was reprinted by Mitchell Beasley in 2004, but it was a very short run, and it went immediately out of print. and um, And today, it's impossible to find, and it costs you a fortune if you can actually find it. Prior to that, yeah, I think that uh, the last Sherry book, uh, you know, was probably written in 1988 by Jan Reed, <laughs> and and that's a long time. So certainly, the time is right, um, you know, for for a, a book on Sherry and. Um, and have you seen more kind of a resurgence in interest among readership? I mean, it seems like more people are drinking sherry, uh, at least in a New York area. Um, oh, I think I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I think that that the interest in sherry today is 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 higher than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. And why do you think that is? Well, I think that uh, for one thing, there. Uh, the standard level of, of quality in, in sherry is extremely high. So, um, there, you know, we all complain about the prices in the wine world and, and, you know, how, um, especially in today, within the, the last 10 years, you know, there, there have been wines that have become prohibitively expensive right. in, in, in a way that they, they were not, you know, in, when I was a young wine drinker. Right. And, um, and there are many of those wines. And there like are many it would seem to me. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, here with Sherry, it's one of these last places where you can get amazing world-class wines. I mean, you know, without exaggeration, you know, like a quality that, that can rival any wine in the world mm-hmm. for relatively kind prices. Mm-hmm. And so that alone, I think, uh, you know, um, uh, gets people interested right. in at least trying it. Like I saw Innocente from Valdespino uh, at retail recently, and it was like well under $20. <laughs> yeah, for it's, the, it's amazing. You know, yeah. it's just it's, not... Not a price you see a lot in other 
prestigious areas of the world, there are classic growing regions with old wine in them. It's true, and especially, I mean, you know, Innocente is one of the iconic finos. I mean, you could you could uh, you make an argument that it's the best fino that there is, and and where in what other region can you find you know like basically the archetypal example, right? You know, of 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 a wine type selling for that amount of money. I did ask if I could purchase the RC for twenty dollars recently, but uh, <laughs> the the response, however long, did seem to be uh, filled mostly with laughing. Yeah, so. of course. <laughs> But uh, so you think it's about value for money? Well, I think that that's a component. But I think also that you know once people start exploring sherry, um, it it becomes uh, it becomes almost addictive. Um, it I don't like using the word unique uh, mm-hmm. because you know very few things in the world are. But sherry, especially when compared with other wines of the world today. Sherry has an extremely distinctive profile, um, and I think today it's it's ex- it's especially pronounced because so much of the the so much of the wine world today focuses on fruit, mm-hmm. and sherry is sort of the antithesis of that. Right? Sherry is nothing about fruit. And what is it about? It's about old wine. Uh-huh. It's about. Uh, um, so, yeah, certainly it's about aging. It's about it's about uh, um, time spent in in the bodega. It's about uh, um, the blending of various wines. But one thing that is perhaps contentious and and you know that uh, that I think should be talked about more is that sherry is also about a profound sense of minerality mm-hmm. and. And this, you know, and it's, I believe that it could be capable of similar expressions of, of place, um, of, of, uh, you know, these, these, you know, identities of place that, that we associate, we associate with, with other, other wines, regions, right? If we were to, if we were to, to give that a chance, um, right now with the depression of the sherry industry, um, you know, it's we're not in a position to be able to to really examine that. But I'm hoping, and and this is one of the things that I'm, I, you know, that both my co-author Jesus Barkin and and I have have really pushed in in our book, is is this idea of returning to terroir, returning to to terroir of the vineyard, you know, and 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 saying that vineyard does matter in sherry. But you know, of course, terroir is not uh, terroir in anything is is not just about single vineyard wines. Um, and you know when when you look at uh you know at sherry i think there there is certainly a regional type of of terroir that that uh, is pertinent um, um you know the soil is is uh is something that that gives sherry very inimitable attributes and even though sherry goes through this long process of elevage and, and you know this, these long processes in the bodega, I think that you know the fine, in the finest sherries you really get that sense of albariza, that sense of this chalky soil coming through, mm-hmm. and um, and to me that's wonderful. One of the things I've noticed in the last few years, and maybe you've seen these trends too, is not just a turn towards mineral, but also a turn towards savory. 
mm-hmm. and a more willingness to encounter bitter flavors, mm-hmm. whether it be in food or cocktails or wine. Mm-hmm. It seems like the emphasis is so often on what sometimes we might refer to as tannins or what other people might refer to as bitters. Um, do you find that as well? And do you find that the market for taste has really changed in, say, the last 10 years? It seems like if you go back to 2005, everybody was talking about full-on fruit mm-hmm. or fruit flavors. And now I feel like mm-hmm. so many people are emphasizing the opposite. And I, I wonder if it's playing into Sherry's favor. I think that you're right. I think, um, you know, it, it, it might be a small sector of the wine drinking populace, but, uh, but I think that it's a vocal one. And, and I think that it's allowed, it's allowed, a a, a sort of different set of wines to emerge in the marketplace. Do you feel like that's something that's happening? Like that niche markets are really defining the wine landscape in a way where it used to feel like it was sort of one wine scene or two wine scenes. It was like the Bordeaux and the Burgundy guys. And now it's like there's all kinds of different camps and checking out different wines at different times. Yeah, I I think, I think that the wine world can definitely be seen that way. Um, I think there's, there's a much more sophisticated level of diversity now than when I started in the wine trade 15 years ago. Um, I mean, you know, of course, 15 years ago, we were drinking all sorts of things too, but, but, uh, like you say, there, there were these blue chip standards that, that you, you know, that you really focused on and, and that you learned about. And, and, um, you know, I mean, it, nobody, specialized in orange wine or you know, right. no, nobody, I mean, even, you know, like even wine regions like the Loire Valley, you know, were, were much more peripheral to a wine drinker sure. back then than, than they are now. Um, um, I mean, I think that this is exciting. I, I think that, that, you know, certainly one of the reasons that, that it, it happened was, was economic just because Bordeaux and Burgundy and Barolo and all this like became prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And, so people are forced to seek out other regions. Alternatives. And- um, you know, and actually one of the things I guess we should touch on is that you uh, actually a couple of times made your own wine uh, in Oregon, <laughs> and which I had a chance to try once. It was delicious. Uh, what, what did doing that project uh, glean for you in terms of the knowledge that you took later to writing? Is there certain lessons you learned? Um well, I suppose I learned that it's better to leave winemaking to the winemaker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, he's a humble man. No, it was it, it was funny. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was living in in Portland, Oregon at the time, uh, um, and I, I was I was a retailer. And I guess uh, I mean I had never made wine before. Yeah, uh, it's um, I, I had worked harvest in Burgundy. Uh, I worked the '98 harvest, um, um, and so with that I had gotten to see sort of the intimate workings of a winery, and, and that was uh, you know and being very close to vineyards and, and whatever, and that that was. Uh, that was extremely valuable, but um, but I had never made wine really, and I guess you know it came about with uh, with this friend that that I worked with, um, you know, at, at this store. Um, we uh, we got in our heads that uh, that we would try to make uh, an Oregon Pinot Gris, just sort of out of the blue. Um, there. Um, there had been a, a a fantastic Pinot Gris made in the '98 vintage um, by uh, by this producer called Elvenglade, and and um, and so 
uh, you know, we were friends with the winemaker, David O'Reilly. And, and so, you know, we, we, we asked him about sourcing grapes, you know, like maybe, you know, from this, this guy, Bill Elvin, Elvin vineyard, you know, like, could we maybe get like a barrel of Pinot Gris? We had, I mean, neither of us really knew what we were doing, but we had very specific ideas of, of the type of wine that we liked. So we knew that we wanted to ferment it in barrel. Uh, we knew that we didn't want malolactic. Um, you know, we because um, a lot of people think you know, agree. Not the first thing I put in barrel. So true. So it's an interesting choice. True. Yeah. True. Um. Um. But you know, I mean, and especially being. Uh, well, you know, when, when you talk about Pinot Green, Oregon, you know, it's not necessarily these big, fat, oily, like, sure. Alsace things, right? It's 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 capable of a much leaner profile, and 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 to me, a more a more interesting one of it being this kind of cool climate, you know, more aromatic, uh, um, um, you know, more more elegant style. Um, uh, yeah, that that. So our first vintage was 1999, <laughs> and. Uh, that was a learning experience. I think I've had that wine though, because it was really good with a lot of age on it. it was... And that's what really surprised us. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we, I mean, it was, it was literally a garage operation. <laughs> we, um, we managed to get a barrel, um, from John Paul of, of Cameron winery. And you know, he, he gave us an old Chloe electric barrel, um, that had never seen mellow. And, uh, you know, David O'Reilly, like, helped us crush the grapes and, you know, like, get the juice into our barrel. And, and we put that in my friend Eric's garage. And, and you know, I mean, ev- everything was fine uh, up until the time that we wanted to sulfur it. So, um, you know, I mean, we don't know what we're doing, but we have plenty of friends who do. So, uh, so we call John Paul, who is, you know, this is... Um, you know, super chemistry oriented, uh, you know, sort of winemaker. And, and, you know, we ask him, uh, well, so it's time to sell for a barrel, you know, like how much do we put in? So he, yeah. gives us, he gives us this measurement and we go to the wine store and, you know, we like, uh, you know, we buy sulfur and we put our sulfur in and we're happy. Then he calls back and says like, wait, Oh no, <laughs> I got the formula wrong. <laughs> oh my God. That's like the guy at NASA, you know, like, oh, that's right. I forgot to tell you about the rockets not firing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, and so, you know, we thought like, okay, this is going to be a disaster. But, uh, but in the end, it actually wasn't. Um, you know, and I don't really understand the chemistry of it, honestly. Uh, um, I don't know, really know what went on with our wine. So you're saying you put in too much too or much too sulfur. little? Oh, too okay. Much, all right. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, in the end, I mean, we left it in barrel for, I don't know. Um, I mean, it was probably, you know, a good six months, uh, um, maybe even longer. Uh, but, but, you know, when it came time to bottle, I mean, I didn't feel like the sulfur was aggressive. Right. Uh, um, you know, I thought that a lot had combined and, and it, the, the wine actually tasted pretty great. Yeah. And I, the, the wine was way better than either of us had anticipated. But, um, so yeah, you know, it was just a barrel. So, you know, we, uh, um, we got these fancy Italian bottles and, you know, we got like the big rubber hose and, you know, siphoned the wine siphoned out, of, <laughs> out of cask and, you know, borrowed a little hand corker from Cameron and, 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 uh, you know, spent all night, uh, you know, bottling this wine. Um, and, uh, no, and it was quite successful. You know, I mean, the, the, the wine, uh, um, um, you know, the, the wine was delicious, even its youth. What we didn't expect was that the wine 
aged really well. Yeah. I mean, even today, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we tasted it maybe mm-hmm. five years ago or something. No, like less than that. It yeah. was like two years yeah. ago. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but the So, wines, and it's 2012 now, so yeah. 99 yeah, vintage. 99 Pinot Gris from Oregon. From Oregon. <laughs> yeah, not quite exactly yeah. what, and it was delicious. Although it was at a Magnum. Yeah, I, as that's I true. That is true. Um, uh, but it, it's, but it remains amazingly fresh and, um, you know, it's not at all oxidative, uh, um, you know, and, and yeah, I, I was quite proud of that. So then you, you might attribute, you know, it's longevity to, you know, well, you guys just over sulfured it. And, right. You know, so that's. Cause uh, sulfur acts as a, as, as something that stops oxidation. Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, you know, we did it again the next year. Um, in the 2000 vintage, we we sourced it from a from a different vineyard. In fact, uh, um, Patricia Green uh, had had hooked us up with um, the grower of the highest elevation Pinot Gris in the Willamette Valley. Oh wow! Which I was excited about. Um, you know, and so so you know we got this fruit and put it in our same barrel and you know did the same methods, but we sulfured it correctly. <laughs> oh okay. How's that one doing? And it has the same type of longevity. Oh really? Yeah. Um, huh. So. Uh, you I know, wonder if it's, it's about the siphoning. Who who's doing the siphoning exactly? Who, who was it that sucked out the? <laughs> we we switched off. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, one guy for on balance. Parker and yeah. yeah, one guy putting wine in the water. But <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, with with both, uh, so they came from different vineyards. But uh, but you know, the idea was the same. Right. Um, you know, in terms the, of winemaking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, the the idea was, uh, um, you know, was to. You know, to harvest at at good ripeness, but uh, but to not have have excessive alcohol, um, um, you know, to to ferment in barrel, mm-hmm. uh, leave it on its lees. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's basically like muscadet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, it's it's uh, essentially bottled surly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no malolactic. Uh, um, yeah, it's um, yeah, pretty pretty non-interventionist, mm. and and both wines have turned out wonderfully well. Um, it's interesting to be able to say that with hindsight of age, yeah. you know what I mean? Because so yeah. often, you know, you like it for a while and then you're like, oh, yeah. well, good thing we drank <laughs> it all, you know. <laughs> but, hey, I mean, one of the things I find is really interesting about you is just your general approach to wine. Um, do you have anything you want to tell us about how you think wine might best be enjoyed or talked about with others? I feel like you must have certain ideas uh, that kind of ground you in how you approach um, the inquiry about wine. Are, have you found that are there are certain techniques that work well for you or just stances or, or ways of being around wine that have helped you learn more? Well, I think that, you know, my approach to wine is, is very academic. It's, um, I mean, wine, you know, was always, I mean, from the beginning, it was always a little bit cerebral, mm-hmm. but it was cerebral for the monks too, I think. True. True. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I think my, um, you know, my views on wine or my, you know, my approach to wine is perhaps more appealing to a certain niche of, uh, you know, or a certain sector of, of wine consumers rather than. There seem to be a few around now. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like I'm the sort of guy who's going to write, you know, write books on really specialized topics like sherry. I'm not going to write an intro wine book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I um, find it's very difficult to, to talk at the intro level. Like yeah. myself, I yeah. find it's much easier to talk about Arcana for it's me. True. I don't, yeah. I don't know what other people are like, but I... no, and 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 I agree. I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of the same way, and I, I suppose that um, you know, it's not it's not that that I don't want to talk about basics, or it's it's not that you know I want to alienate people. It's just that that because of 
because of my personal because my personal approach to wine has always been so cerebral and and you know and so sort of like like deliberately inquisitive into the arcana um that's what i that's what i just invariably focus on but i think it's easier too just to have a conversation that's a little limited in terms because wine is so broad that when you try to write basic books to include the whole world of wine there's always an exception you know there's Mm -hmm. always like well except (laughs) for that one place where it's done like this whereas if you're in that one place where it's done like that you can have statements you know what i mean that make sense and are ring true i feel like a lot of times when i try to do intro things there's always an exception and you're always trying to like kind of nicely skirt the exception (laughs) in a way that's still true but makes it sound like uh not like a a tangled sentence you know yeah. Uh, you know, you're still incorporating the knowledge that yes, you know that because you don't want that one guy to call you up and be like, "You forgot about <laughs> Mataron or whatever, yeah, whatever yeah. it might yeah. be." You it's know, true. it's just I think it's much harder to make a generalized statement that holds true for the entire world. Yeah, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you start limiting factors, yeah. you know, and and you're only talking about uh, one geographic place, as diverse as it may be you're still dealing with one set of predominant winds and one, yeah. one kind of major soil type and mm-hmm. things get a little easier. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And, um, yeah. And I, I suppose, you know, that's why I'm, I'm so heavily specialized, you know, nowadays, but, but I think, you know, in terms of wine in general, I think that, um, do you think that's going to happen more? Do you think more people are going to become specialized? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. I think you know the the idea that you can be a, a generalist in the world of wine is it's not necessarily over, but it's it's just not interesting. I remember right? I had a college professor, and he said Freud was the last guy that tried to come up with a theory of everything. <laughs> he was the last guy that tried to make the theory work for everything: sure. the development of people, the development of religion, mm-hmm. the whole thing. He tried to explain it all in one theory. He was the last mm-hmm. guy that did that because you know it used to be something that Aristotle did. It used to be something sure. Plato did. And I feel like Parker was that guy for why yeah. he was the last guy that tried one. to be the great generalist, you yeah. know, try to cover everything. Yeah. And I just, I just feel like you, the world has gotten so much bigger that the, the, what that would mean physically to encounter all those wines for yes. that one person, I think would be detrimental to success. Yes. I mean, I don't even have enough time in my year to cover champagne completely. Right. <laughs> but just the physical amount of drinking that that would entail, even That's if true. you were spitting, like, I think the generalist approach has to be, I, I don't know how someone could do it. Yeah. Like, in terms of encompassing the whole world, yeah, you know? It's true. Well, what happens is that uh, the more you generalize, the more sort of superficial your your experience with each region is. Right. Right. Um, At the same time that importers are bringing in more and more small things, mm-hmm. there's more and more importers bringing mm-hmm. in more uh, kind of niche items. Yeah. So it seems like there needs to be more and more niche writers covering those items i think so too i mean i think that that's important i think that specialization specialization is the way of the future um you know and not even just in wine but i think in in, in anything what do you think else is going to happen in the wine world i mean what do you see f- foreseeing besides price increases which seem to be a given these days uh what else is going to happen in the next five to ten years that we should be thinking about that's a good question um well I think that uh, a new generation of growers is going to is going to be coming up. Uh, um, you know, I mean, I see it in Champagne, but uh, because that's what I deal with. But I, I think it probably holds true for for other wine regions as well, and certainly wine regions in France. Um, but you know, as as a new generation takes over, um, they they tend to um, 
be more inquisitive. They're Im implementing new ideas, but they they place more emphasis on on the vineyards. Um, we've already seen this this happening. Um, you know, and like if if you look at Champagne, uh, you know, like within the last like. 10 to 20 years, you have the rise of, of the, these, these incredible growers and, and this, this new generation of people who are, who are very exciting. But I think that, that that's going to amplify and, and, and we're going to see much more of that. And, and that's going to have implications for the region as a whole. Um, pricing is going to be a problem, I think. Um, you know, what I'm always afraid of is that, uh, is that, well, already the wines that that I cut my teeth on when I was a, a young wine professional, and there's no way that somebody entering the industry now would be able to taste them. I've seen a lot of young guys with long teeth <laughs> in the business, and um, and so what you know what what I'm afraid of is is that that wine is going to become more and more alienating. Mm -hmm. you know, that that fewer people are going to be able to to afford classic wines, and. You know, at least with Champagne, um, Champagne is a large region. I'm hoping that uh, you know there will always be that. No matter how how expensive the the top cuvées get, stuff, um, you know, there will always be. be Champagne for everybody. Yeah, and and I do think that that uh, you know again because of economics, um, people are going to be pushed more into lesser known regions. And, you know, again, this is something that we've already seen, you know, like we, we talked about, uh, you know, over, over the last 10 years, uh, um, um, you know, it's this um, diversification, you know, within, within the wine market. And I think that's only going to increase. And that is also very exciting because that, that allows us to, to discover things that, that, you know, we didn't know about before. That allows, uh, um, you know, if, if there's a market for these wines, that allows producers in these regions to work better and, and, um, and, you know, I, I think that that the wine world can still be an exciting place, um, and you know, I I hope that I hope that that's true. I wanted to talk a little bit about online writing with you. Um, you know, you've done a lot of work in print uh, for some of the top publications. I mean, obviously, Wine and Spirits, but also World of Fine Wine, and a number of others uh, outlets. But then you've done a lot of work online, and you put ChampagneGuide.net online. Um, but then you also, for a while, had a, a personal blog that was quite good, one of my favorite blogs, and you chose to stop it. Was there any reason outside of time commitment that you decided to stop the blog? I mean, what was your experience writing it? Was there something that you said, well, you know, I'm just not into this anymore? Well, to be perfectly frank, it's economic. I got you. Um, I mean, I'm a professional writer by, by trade. That's how I make my money, yeah. um, as little as it is. But... Uh, you know, there at some point it doesn't it doesn't make sense for me to write for free. Got it. Right. If I mean, you know, this 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 uh, this holds true for any profession, right? No matter right, what right. it is that you do. Sure. I don't see the guys in <laughs> Ferrari uh, giving away cars. <laughs> there you go. So um, you know, I enjoyed my blog, and uh, um, um, you know, it was a lot of fun writing it, but. Um, but you know, to give away this material, you know, like uh, for free, when when that is when when writing is is my is the is my only thing. source of income, right? Then um, you know, both in terms of time and in terms of, of material and you know and, and, and all of this, it just it really didn't make sense. What's going to happen with the young crop of writers, wine writers? Are they going to be able to hack it in terms of money? Are they going to be able to be paid enough? I feel like sometimes I've heard a couple other people express this concern about money. 
It's extremely difficult. Um, wine writing is notoriously low-paying for the you know for for the skill and experience involved. And I feel like no one has any sympathy because they all think you're off drinking, sure. you know, nineteen, sure. twenty-one, whatever. <laughs> and in some cases, that's true. Um, yeah, you can't complain about the perks. Yeah, um, you know that's uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly to make a living as a wine writer is is challenging. Was it something you'd recommend to someone who wanted to do it? Or would you steer them clear of that idea? Honestly, I'm not sure I could recommend it to anybody. Really? It's to that point? Yeah. So yeah. if you're if you're hearing that, <laughs> Peter has thrown the gauntlet down, and he desires no further competition in the era of, of wine writing. Disabuse yourself of the knowledge of writing the next Sherry book. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Peter, I want to thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And uh, you're not just one of my favorite writers, you're one of my favorite people. So it's always good to, to share a table with you. Thank you. No, thank you, Levy. I really appreciate it. It's been great to see you. Peter Leem, who has uh, a forthcoming book on Sherry to be published uh, soon, uh, along with his co-author, Jesus Barkin, and who has ChampagneGuide.net online, an online service detailing producers in the Champagne region of France. Thank you, Peter. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.